exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. As Protestants, we really do not like being told what to do. There's a story from the aftermath of the Reformation when England became Anglican and Scotland became Presbyterian, and that was a problem because England ruled over Scotland. And honestly, the two groups didn't even have that much indifference theologically, but the Presbyterians really resented being told what to do by the Anglicans. And so there's one story that there was a Scottish pastor who was preaching in England and the Anglican priest was showing him around and, and the priest told the pastor, oh, those are the robes you'll wear when you preach. And the Scottish pastor stopped and he said, are you going to make me wear them? And the Anglican paused and thought for a second. And he said, well, no, not if you don't want to. And the Presbyterian responded, okay, then I'll wear them. I feel that cantankerous spirit in my blood, both as a Protestant and as a Scotsman. If you tell me we have to follow some kind of church tradition, then I'm going to push back just instinctively. But thankfully, because no one told me that we had to have a Palm Sunday service, here we are. The Bible doesn't command us to celebrate Palm Sunday or even Easter for that matter. The only holiday we see in the Bible commanded is the Lord's Day, the Sabbath on Sunday for believers to gather. But very early in church history, the church understood that the most important part of the gospel story was the last week of Jesus' life, or what we know as the Passion. The early church understood that it was the Passion of Jesus, or the sufferings of Jesus, that was the pinnacle of his ministry. That the most important week of Jesus' life was his last week, because that's the week he entered Jerusalem for the last time. That's the week he was crucified. That's the week he was buried. And that's the week he rose from the grave. You see, Jesus preached a lot of amazing sermons in his time here on earth. He performed countless of incredible miracles while he was here. But the high point, the focus of Christ's ministry was really the end of his life. That's why both Matthew and Mark dedicate a quarter of their gospel just to the last seven days of Christ's life. Luke dedicated a third of his gospel. John dedicated half of his gospel. All on the last seven days of Christ's life here on earth. Why? Because Christ's death and resurrection isn't just the end of the story. It's not even just the high points of the gospel. It's not even just the high point of the Bible. It's the high point of all human history. And so for the past 2,000 years, the church has made a special effort to spend extra time focusing on the last week of Christ's life from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And we join them in that tradition this morning. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. It's on page 605. Fun fact, Psalm 118 is the centermost chapter in all the Bible. So if you just open your Bible up to the very middle, you should get pretty dang close. But as you're turning, let me tell you that this psalm is in a group of psalms that were sung during the Passover feast. These were praise songs. The night Jesus was betrayed was during the night of the Passover feast. And we're told that at the end of the feast, he and the apostles sang a hymn together and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And many scholars 
argue that Psalm 118 was most likely what Jesus sang because it was traditional because this is the last of the Passover Psalms. This is the last one you'd sing to end your celebrations. And, and, with, and so as we read Psalm 118, the question in the back of our mind should be, what was going through Jesus' mind as he sang this psalm? This psalm is quoted more times by the New Testament writers than any other psalm. And as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, the people quoted this psalm shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why do they do that? Because Psalm 118 paints the picture of a glorious king returning from battle. And when the Israelites saw Jesus entering the city of David that day, they were crying out for a king to save them from their Roman occupiers. They were crying out for a king to rescue them. And isn't that what we're all looking for? How many of you are yearning in your hearts for a good and righteous king to come and set all things right? To rid us of our wicked rulers, to do away with war and corruption and evil? And even more than that, how much are we longing for a king who could totally and finally conquer sin and death? And that's the kind of king we see in Psalm 118. And the good news is that Jesus has come to be that kind of king. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would be able to praise Jesus as our king in all circumstances. Because in Psalm 118, we find three ways to praise the Lord. First, in verses 1 through 4, thank the Lord for his promises. Second, in verses 5 through 18, trust the Lord in every trial. And finally, in verses 19 through 29, call on the Lord for salvation. Thank him for his promises, trust him in every trial, and call on him for salvation. And so let's pray and let's sing who this king, this king of glory is. Eternal God, your word silences the shouts of the mighty. So we ask that you would quiet within us every voice but your own. Speak to us through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may receive Christ's love and grace. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen. Look with me to verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist starts with a call to worship like we do here every Sunday. First, he calls all the congregation of Israel in verse 2. Then he calls the priests of Israel, the Levites or the house of Aaron in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he calls all those who fear the Lord. So he's calling everybody, anybody who has any inclination to worship this God, come and fear him and thank him. And why should we praise this God called Yahweh? Well, the psalmist gives us two reasons in verse one. Number one, he's good. And number two, his steadfast love endures forever. Goodness isn't just something God does, but it is who God is. God is good. And it's impossible for him to be anything but good. And he alone is good. In fact, you know why in English we call God God? Because in English, hundreds of years ago, so many people used to refer to the God of the Bible as the good. And just over time, the good 
got shortened to God. And so the name we even use for God reflects the fact that he is good. And not only is he good, but his steadfast love endures forever. This is the chorus of Psalm 118. And many of you guys know that phrase steadfast love that we see over and over again is pregnant with meaning. God's steadfast love, that that word in the original language is one word. And it's a deep word describing God's covenant-keeping love. That when our God makes a covenant, when he makes a promise, it would be easier for him to stop existing than to break that promise. Abraham, at the age of 75, was told that his 74-year-old wife would become pregnant. As I was thinking about Marty, Marty, imagine in 13 years if you were told (laughs) Joan would conceive and give birth to a boy. Abraham was given this promise at 75. It took 25 years before Isaac was born by Sarah, but all that time God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham. He also promised Abraham that one day his descendants would become slaves, but he was going to free them from that slavery. And it took 437 years in Egypt, but all that time God was faithful to his promises. In Isaiah 7, the Lord told us a virgin's going to give birth. He's gonna give birth or she's going to give birth to a son, and we're going to call his name Emmanuel. It took over 800 years before the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus. But all that time, God's steadfast love endured. The promises that believers have in Christ are beyond comparison to even these. That he who began a good work into you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That no one can pluck you from the Father's hand. That he will wipe away every tear. That he is working all things together for good. And if you have nothing in your life to be thankful for, always, always, always remember that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. We're called to thank the Lord, not just for all he's done, but for all he's promised. So thank the Lord for his promises. And that's the first way we praise the Lord. But the second way is to trust him in every trial. Look with me to verses five through 13, or just five through seven for now. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Look at how confident the psalmist is that the Lord will rescue him. In verse 5, he says that the Lord has answered him in the past. In verse 6, he says the Lord is protecting him in the present. In verse 7, he says the Lord will help him in the future. And how often do we forget all the Lord has done to answer our prayers in the past? How often do we forget that he is with us now in the future, in the present? And how often do we doubt that he will help us in the future? Remember that sweet promise in Romans 8. God, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the psalmist's mindset. But he, he doesn't just want to have personal peace. He also wants you, you as well to have that kind of peace. Look at verses 8 and 9. He tells us, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. 
The psalmist tells us that from the least to the greatest, from the average man to the most powerful prince, it is always better to take refuge in the Lord. All kings are pawns on the Lord's chessboard. None of them hold a candle. None of them can frustrate his plans. None of them can do anything to you unless the Lord ordains it. Charles Spurgeon once said, it is a foolish, stupid, and silly thing to fear a creature so small as man when compared to our almighty God. It doesn't matter what the earthly odds are. Whatever side the Lord's on, that is the winning side. Amen? Amen. And when the psalmist testifies from his own personal experience, he finds this to be true every time. He tells his own story in verses 10 through 13. Look, look with me. He said, all nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Now, you may not know much about military strategy, but being surrounded is bad. It means you're outnumbered. It means you have no means of escape. And the psalmist tells us that he was surrounded on every side, that his enemies were swarming like bees. You ever tried to fight a swarm of bees? It doesn't matter if you have the strongest man in the world. He cannot win a fight with a beehive. He will run when that, those bees begin to swarm. And that's the picture the psalmist is painting. But look, look what happens in almost every verse. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Three times he repeats that chorus because he wants us to know that even though he won the battle, even though he fought, even though he put forward effort, he acknowledges that it was only because of the Lord that he was able to succeed. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders build in vain. These enemies went from bees that were impossible to fight, to get rid of, to thorns burning quickly in a fire. And the psalmist is so overwhelmed with excitement that he just bursts into praise in the next three verses. Look, verses 14 through 16. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Notice first off in verse 14, that it's the psalmist who's singing. The Lord has become my salvation individually. But then by the time we get to 15, it's all the righteous singing together. That there's a natural progression from personally experiencing the love and the salvation of God that overflows into being a part of the community of God. But yeah, our, our relationship with God is personal, but it's never meant to be private. It's always meant to be lived in community with other believers. I'll tell you, one of my favorite parts of every week is, is usually when I'm up here and we're singing and, and that end of the service when the music cuts and I just hear your voices lifted up to the Lord. Like we're never going to be a big church with a million people on stage with incredibly gifted musicians. But when the voices of the saints are lifted high and I can hear truth coming from you and, and all of us saying together, the Lord has saved me. He has redeemed me. Christ is our king. All glory be to Christ. 
there's encouragement in being with the righteous and singing together in that way. And I love that here at this church. Our worship is simple, but it's glorious. And when you read verses 14 through 16, if you know your Old Testament really well, these verses should sound incredibly familiar. Verse 14 is actually the words of Moses from the song of Moses in Exodus 15. That after the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt, Moses sang, the Lord is my strength and my song. Now, I'll be honest. <laughs> when I sat down to study Psalm 18, I had no idea he was quoting Moses at all. I didn't know my Old Testament well enough to catch what he was quoting from, but the Israelites did know their Old Testament, and they would have known exactly what the psalmist was quoting. And one of the reasons this psalm was sung during the Passover festival is because this psalm is reminding the Israelites of when God rescued them out of slavery. And that's what the Passover feast was all about. Just look back over verses 10 through 13 and think about the exodus from Egypt. Remember when the Israelites were surrounded by Egyptian soldiers on every side and the Red Sea was to their back. They were total goners, slipping, falling with no help. But then what happened? The Lord helped the Israelites. He split the Red Sea and the Israelites walked on dry land while the Egyptians who chased them were drowned and consumed by the waters. The Israelites were surrounded by the greatest military force the world had ever known. And without throwing a single punch, without losing a single man, in the name of the Lord, they cut them off. And now think about the Israelites who would have sung this during the Passover festival, living in the promised land. You think about Israel's neighbors back then, it's not hard to imagine because if you think about Israel's neighbors today, the Israelites have always lived on this small strip of land surrounded by nations who want nothing but to destroy them. And now look at verse 10. Verse 10 would have been a huge comfort to those living in the promised land because they could have very easily lived their entire lives in fear of annihilation from the surrounding nations. But instead, because of verses 10 through 13, they could trust that the Lord would deliver him. And that's why he goes on in verses 17 through 18. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Martin Luther loved Psalm 118. He called it his beloved psalm. In fact, he said it was, it was his favorite of all the psalms that, that when Luther refused to recant his beliefs, he was declared an outlaw and a heretic. And so Luther went into hiding to save his own life. And while he was on the run, he clung to verse 17. That he was in hiding for six months, not knowing every day if he would wake up and be executed. Knowing that if he'd be found, he'd be killed. But he kept repeating verse 17 to himself. And the Lord answered Luther's prayer. And it's actually, I think it's, it's interesting. In verse 17, it talks about, I will recount the deeds of the Lord. While Luther was hiding for that six months, he wrote about 50 books and translated much of the Old Testament into German, which had never been done before. So Luther was very much faithful to continue to tell of all the Lord had done for him. Something interesting in verse 18, something that we don't expect, is that the psalmist sees his trial as discipline from God. 
Which isn't that strange? Like, like it was the enemies of the psalmist who were trying to kill him earlier in verse 10, but now he's saying, Lord, you're the one that's disciplining me. What's going on here? What's going on is that our God is so powerful that at times he can use sinful men in this world to sinlessly accomplish his purpose. Even if that purpose is disciplining those that he loves. Notice that the Lord's not punishing the psalmist here, but he disciplines him in verse 18. Punishment is what a judge does, but discipline is what a father does. And as we go through trials, we need to recognize that even God is probably using the trials in our lives, even using the actions of sinful people around us to discipline us, to grow us, to mature us. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. And nothing can happen to those he loves unless he ordains it, unless he allows it. You even think about the time that that Job was walking about the earth and Satan came to the Lord and he said, let me do these things and not a single hair of Job's head could be touched until the Lord allowed it. But the devil is no equal to God. The devil is a small creature who has no power unless God allows it. And even think about Jesus' life. Time and time again, the Pharisees were relentlessly trying to arrest Jesus and they failed spectacularly every time. They tried to stone him twice in the streets and both times he just miraculously got away. And eventually they did arrest him, but only after he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in broad daylight, voluntarily marching to his death. The reason we celebrate Palm Sunday is because Jesus was not a victim of circumstance. But he triumphantly rode into Jerusalem, determined to give his life on the cross. Nothing can happen unless God ordains it. And because God is good, we should trust that all he ordains is good. And that's the second way we praise the Lord. We trust him in every trial. But we also call on the Lord for salvation. Look with me to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In verses 19 through 24, we get the picture of a victory parade. We get the picture of a conquering king coming home from war. After the Lord delivered the king and delivered his people, it was only only natural for the king to lead a parade through the streets of Jerusalem, through the temple gates, and to offer sacrifices at the temple. You see, in the Old Testament... The Lord's presence dwelt in the temple, that if you wanted to have communion with God, you went to the temple, but only the righteous could enter through those gates. That's why Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Only those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Only the righteous have a right to enter God's presence. And that's why when Adam and Eve sinned, God kicked them out of the garden. Because none of us have clean hands and a pure heart. And the question of the Bible is, how do we get back into God's presence? Because all of us are sinners. 
All of us were born sinners because of Adam's first sin, and every day we follow in his footsteps. We choose to ignore God's commands in favor of what we want, in favor of the lies of the devil. We doubt God's goodness. We call into question his faithfulness because all of us from birth are born totally depraved. So how do we become righteous? Well, I'll tell you what. You can't make yourself righteous. There's a lot of people that think all you have to do to be a good person is have your good deeds, that way your bad deeds, and then hopefully that'll be enough to tip the scales. But what did the prophet Isaiah tell us? He told us that even our good deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. And at the end of the day, none is good but God. And there's no way for us to become good unless verse 21 happens to us. Unless the Lord himself becomes our salvation. And that's what the Lord has always done for his people. The Israelites were always the underdog and the Lord always rescued them. God's people were always the stone the builders rejected. And the Lord, time and time again, would turn them into the chief cornerstone. Back in the day, they didn't use concrete like we do. They didn't pour a foundation. They would get stones that were common in the area. And the builders would take the stone and examine good stone, bad stone. They'd throw some out because they wouldn't be good. But the most solid foundational stone would be on the corner because it would hold the whole house together. Be the most important stone. So be the image of the builders rejecting the best stone out there that becomes the most important Once again, Abraham, who was a childless old man, the worst candidate to become the father of a great nation. But the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. That David was the youngest of seven sons. While Saul was king, Saul was this tall, impressive conqueror. And David was the last person you'd expect to take the throne. But the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. And then we get to the ultimate cornerstone, Jesus of Nazareth, born into poverty, son of a carpenter, riding into Jerusalem, not on a white horse to make war, but on a donkey to bring peace. And on Palm Sunday, the people wanted him for a king, but by Friday, they condemned him as a thief. But God raised Christ from the dead, and the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. It was through Christ who was rejected that the Lord has become our salvation. It was through Christ's humiliation and suffering and sacrifice that our sins could be taken away. That he died the death we deserved, but now he's the cornerstone of our faith. And the question for us is this, what must we do to be saved? Well, look to verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Our Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. When Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem, the crowd shouted, Hosanna, which means save us. They were quoting verse 25. That word in the original language is Hosanna. They shouted, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they believed Jesus was the king they had been waiting for. 
And they were right. The problem was they didn't realize that he came not to be Caesar, but their sacrifice. And they wanted a politician, not a Passover lamb. It's interesting because usually when a leader disappoints us, it's because they fail to meet our expectations. But here, the people would be disappointed with Jesus because their expectations were too low. The Israelites had all these hopes of political freedom and they thought the Messiah would come and he would come in riding on a horse to kick out the Romans and to take the throne by force. But when Jesus came, he came riding humbly on a donkey, not to bring war, but peace. Not to save them from the Romans, but to save them from the wrath of God. He wasn't the king the people wanted, but he is the king everybody needs. That the Israelites' biggest problem wasn't their bondage to Rome, but their bondage to sin. And they didn't see the big picture as their king came riding in, as they were stirred up in excitement, hoping for political freedom. But for Jesus, it was too small a thing to bring political freedom. The throne in Jerusalem was too small of a throne, and the borders of Israel were too small of a nation. That Jesus didn't just come to be their king in verse 26, but he also came to be their sacrifice in verse 27. Jesus didn't just come to celebrate the Passover. He came to be our Passover lamb. And now if anyone will cry out to God, Hosanna, save us. If anyone will cry out to Jesus, God, save us, then he'll save them. And if you trust in the one who was rejected, then you will be accepted by God Almighty. And if anyone repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus, their hands will become clean and their heart will become pure. My prayer for us this morning is that we would be able to praise Jesus as our king in all circumstances because in Psalm 118, we found three ways to praise the Lord by thanking him for his promises, by trusting him in every trial and by calling on him for salvation. So let me ask you, are you thankful do you praise the Lord because he's good or just when he does good things for you? Are you thankful for God's covenant faithfulness? What are you trusting in? Are you hoping for some kind of political savior or are you hoping in the king of kings? Well, I have three pastoral charges for you. I have three ways we can learn to praise Jesus as king in all circumstances. First pastoral charge. Don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in princes. Jesus was so much greater than they could have ever hoped for. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, the people in Jesus' day were like ignorant children who wanted to go on making mud pies in the slum because they couldn't imagine what was meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. They were far too easily pleased. And it's the same with people today. What do people get more excited about, Jesus or politics? Politics, of course, that every election feels like the end of the world. If the blue team takes over, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? If the red team takes over, oh no, what are we going to do? The fate of the country is at stake. Yeah, maybe. But no matter what happens to this country, Jesus is still king. I love this country. I'm proud to be an American. I love this country. But at the end of all time, America is going to be a footnote in the history of Jesus. I love this country, but I'm also a citizen in the eternal kingdom. And that America is going to pass away one day. And all who are in Christ will take up residence in the new Jerusalem with Jesus. And that's where our hope is. Empires rise and empires fall. Caesar was all powerful, but today he's a salad. 
Napoleon was a conqueror, and today we make short jokes about him. And Lincoln freed the slaves, and now you can get 20% off a mattress on his birthday. Jesus is still king through all these things. He is reigning from his throne in heaven, and, and Acts 15 says he's going to reign until all his enemies are his footstool, and his freedom is greater than anything we could have ever hoped for. So don't put your trust in princes. Second pastoral charge. Trust that the Lord is good, especially in your trials. Trust that the Lord is good, especially in your trials. What that means for you, Christian, is that you and I live in a world where nothing can happen unless God ordains it. The trials or temptation, poverty or persecution, nothing can touch you unless God in his infinite wisdom and goodness sees fit to allow it. And that means that we can say to every cross we face, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And I don't know what trial you're going through right now. I don't know what your diagnosis is or what your affliction is. But I know this. God will use it and is using it. We all want health and financial security and worldly comfort, but the Lord knows that losses and crosses are better for us if they lead us to Jesus. Uh, Once again, in the words of of Charles Spurgeon, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. So trust the Lord in all your trials. Third pastoral charge, call on Christ for salvation. Call on Christ for salvation. I want you to think about the Passover One last time, not the festival, but the actual Passover in Exodus, what the Passover was celebrating. The Passover was celebrating that final plague in Egypt where the Lord sent the spirit of death through the land to kill the firstborn of every family. It was a gruesome event, and in the end, God passed over and spared the firstborn children of Israel, but not Egypt. Why did he do that? Why did God... Pass over the Israelites? Is it because they were more righteous than the Egyptians? Is it because they were holier? Is it because they had done the right things? No. It was simply because God promised to pass over every house that was marked by the blood of the Lamb. The only difference between those who lived and those who died was whether or not their house was covered in the blood of the Lamb. And that's the only difference today. And if you turn from your sin and cry out, Hosanna, and you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, then the Lord's judgment will pass over you. You will be righteous and have everlasting life. So call on him to save you today. And on that note, let's pray. Dear Almighty God, you're good, and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray that we may be faithful citizens of your kingdom. May we serve Christ as king. May we be faithful ambassadors of his gospel. And in all things, thank you, thank you, thank you for who you are and for your countless blessings and promises you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Forkin Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace 
the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to hurricanbaptist.com.